MSW Media. This week, Donald Trump threatened to declare a state of emergency in order to build a wall on the southern border without the consent of Congress. At the same time, we learned important news from the investigation of special counsel Robert Mueller, including the revelation that former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort gave internal poll data to a Russian intelligence operative. We also learned that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein will step down when Bill Barr is confirmed as Attorney General and that he plans to stay until the Mueller report is completed, which suggests that the Mueller investigation may come to an end soon. Does Trump have the power to declare a state of emergency? What can we learn from the new developments in the Mueller investigation? And what does this mean for the Trump presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, this has been an insanely busy week. Yeah, this is on topics. This is not on topic this week. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's going to be hard. It is. It is literally to the point where we the topics keep growing and growing uh, by the minute as we prepare to record. No doubt about it. I mean, I thought it was going to be emergency, you know, national emergency and the president's powers, and then I thought it was going to be the indictment yesterday for Natalia. I'm not going to try and say her last name. Uh, Manafort's filing, and then today more news. So th- it just keeps coming. It does. I. And I will say to everyone who is listening, it has been a busy week for me personally. I represent a lot of clients, so I actually was in court and doing a lot of things this week. So you didn't see a lot of Twitter threads for me this week. I haven't been on television this week. Uh, So you are going to get a lot of my views for the first time here on this podcast. And it is going to be jam-packed with information and analysis. Did you you watch the president's statement? Because I I, I boycotted it. I did. You did. Well, you have to. You're supposed to. I kind of have to. Uh, I One did. of us has to not. And in fact, I was waiting to uh, post uh, on Twitter for about questions because I wanted to see whether or not he was going to actually declare a state of emergency. Fair. Okay. And uh, when he turned out that he didn't, uh, that changed our, our you know questions a little bit. But um, you know, the bottom line is that um, is that um, you know it still matters what, what the president's authority is in a state of emergency. First of all, because I think all of us, at least I was surprised to learn at the extent of the president's power to do a bunch of things without Congress's approval uh, or funding. And second of all, he's still threatening to declare a state of emergency. Right. So Sarah Sanders mentioned today that that's still on the table. And so uh, I think it's important for all of us to learn about it. I, I learned a lot this week reading about the law in that area. So we're going to bring in a professor briefly to kind of walk through that area of the law, what the issues are, 
how Trump could be challenged if he tries to declare a state of emergency uh, and and how that those laws could be changed, because I think that's important. Yeah, and some of the listeners are like, you know, this f- smacks of a dictatorship. If he doesn't get what he wants, he can just, you know, swing that bat. Well, absolutely. I, I Look, uh, uh, an important piece of our Constitution is that... Only the House of Representatives can um, can initiate bills that raise taxes and revenue. That's the first thing. And then that any money spent has to be appropriated by Congress. That's something called the power of the purse. And the founders of our country put that power in Congress to make sure that you didn't have a tyrannical mm-hmm. president who was uh, essentially able to do things without uh, having uh, support from – it's a check and balance uh, from that other – that other piece of the government, and that was the branch. whole yeah, that was the whole idea of representation. Exactly right, and so I think this, it's a valid question uh, as to what how these how these laws should work, and is important for us to learn. Then we're going to bring in Mimi Roca. Many of you know uh, MSNBC legal analyst, and we're going to really talk in depth, not just about the issues of this week, because there is a lot of news this week. We learned about the Mueller investigation, but I want to talk about. Where we're going to go from here, what this tells us about where Mueller's at, what we can expect going forward. I want to try to to talk about some of the big issues regarding the Mueller Mueller investigation this week. So let's get right to it. So let's bring in Professor William Banks. Uh, Professor Banks is a professor of law at Syracuse Law School. He is also the founding director of the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism at Syracuse. He's the former dean of Syracuse Law, uh, Law School, the author of many and co-author of many uh, uh, books and, and articles about national security law. And he's an expert on a topic that I think is useful to all of us. So let's bring him in now. <phone rings> Professor Banks, thanks for joining the podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you, Renato and Patty. I wanted to talk uh, about this issue of a national emergency, a state of emergency that we've all heard a lot about in the news. Uh, it's it, it seemed to be a way that, uh, you know, President Trump talked about uh, potentially getting around the fact that that under the Constitution, uh, Congress has the power of the, what they call the power of the purse. They it, funds have to be uh, raised by Congress and ultimately appropriated by Congress. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about um, what uh, what a state of emergency means, both as a, a matter of statute and, and under the Constitution? Sure. So you stated the most basic point. That's perhaps the most important point is that our government cannot spend money without an appropriation, and the appropriations must come from Congress. So in a, at the starting point here, President Trump is stuck with respect to a wall because there's not an appropriation for that purpose. The idea of a, a declaring a national emergency is, uh, is a way around, if you will, the seeming barrier that there is to his barrier. So the National Emergencies Act was enacted by Congress in 1976, and it was actually an attempt to clear up a bunch of old emergency declarations that have been around for some, in some instances, several decades. So what they did in 76 was to sort of wipe the slate clean, uh, eliminate, or that is uh, uh, terminate all the existing national emergencies, but yet created a new formula 
for presidents going forward to declare a national emergency. So the law that exists now and has since 1976 will allow president to declare a national emergency. Uh, and by the way, there are no criteria supplied for what might constitute a national emergency. You or I might say that there's no emergency at the border, but if President Trump says there is, and if he describes it as such, then he may declare a national emergency. And then the mechanism allows the president to find so-called standby authorities, statutes that have been created by Congress at other times to allow spending for certain purposes during an emergency. In the case of the wall, there are a couple of statutes that may, I say may because it's not clear, may give him the chance to uh, spend some so-called military construction funds that have already been appropriated and at least begin work on the wall. So uh, can you explain to us, I think a lot of a lot of folks uh, have been having trouble understanding why it is that the president has sole discretion to determine whether there's an emergency or not. In other words, it seems that it potentially gives a president an unfettered power to declare an emergency when none exists in order to expand his or her powers. Um, Can you explain that to us? There are a number of us, I think, who are concerned with the breadth of the authority that was given to the president in the National Emergencies Act. Uh, And I think the act is in a pretty serious need of reform. Uh, On the other hand, uh, two days after 9-11, President George W. Bush declared a national emergency so that he could draw on members of the U.S. Army Reserves and the National Guard to supplement active duty troops to reform critical national security functions. I think very few of us at the time had any reason to criticize President Bush's declaration of a national emergency. So he used exactly the same formula that President Trump would would use this time. So it's it's difficult to parse uh, one emergency from another, at least in the abstract. How would you respond to someone who said that this the act as it's currently written is unconstitutional? What do you think the arguments are on both both sides in terms of whether the statute is, you know, topple is 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 uh, con- you know contrary to the Constitution? Well, I think here the problem with the argument is that it was Congress itself who's possessing the uh, authority to uh, issue appropriations that provided the mechanism for the president to go forward. So Congress is, in effect, delegating a piece of its power, but they're retaining control over it in that the appropriations that are utilized have also been enacted by Congress. So in this case, it would be the so-called military construction appropriation that that the president might use to fund on an emergency basis. Uh, in that case, how the the funds that can be used have to be used in support of a military operation. And now, as we know, the military are deployed, some 6,000 of them at the southern border, but it's very hard to say that the, that the troops are there, that the operation that is ongoing is a military operation. They're there really just providing logistics and support for Customs and Border Patrol, which, of course, are civilians and couldn't use a military construction 
appropriation. Professor, I've been trying to do a little bit of research on this, and of course the Washington Post did a piece on uh, the situation in which Truman declared a state of emergency uh, with Youngstown and the, the steel strike uh, in order to keep the uh, lines of steel, uh, you know, the supply going. Has there been another situation where a president has uh, declared a national state of emergency because he c- couldn't get what he wanted through Congress? There, are, there have been a number of those uh, historically, Patty, and, and fortunately, I think the, uh, what, what Congress was doing in the mid-1970s when they enacted the National Emergencies Act was to wipe the slate clean of the, the Truman Declaration, of course, which had already not been upheld by the Supreme Court, but dozens of others that had been lying fallow over the years, some of them back into the 19th century. Well, and that's a, that, that brings up a question a lot of people have as far as, you know, stopping a national emergency. While that, you know, um, might have been something that they did with Truman, is that the course now we would have to go to the Supreme Court in order to stop it? It's possible, you know, but it's, it's somewhat difficult to imagine how a case would uh, make its way to the court. Some individual would have to have standing to challenge the law. I can imagine, say, uh, a landowner or property owner on the southern border who doesn't want to uh, doesn't want an ugly steel barrier in his or her backyard. There's one possibility. Uh, but even there, uh, if we're going to take this to a, a logical extension, the, the government through the through the Justice Department could exercise the power of eminent domain and simply start taking property of landowners along the border. Uh, cost there would be staggering, uh, given the the scope of the project and the number of miles, acres. And property owners who would have to be compensated. What about, wouldn't a member of Congress potentially have standing? No, I, that used to be the case, at least that you could make that argument pretty credibly, but there have been a number of decisions in the last 20 years, 25 years, that have very strictly limited the ability of members of Congress to bring uh, lawsuits on their own on a personal basis or as a representative of the larger group. The entire body might be able to bring a lawsuit, but of course we don't have uh, consensus from from the entire uh, body to allow that to go forward. So let's say that Trump, you know, just to be clear, Trump is still threatening, at least according to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she says that Trump is still having, you know, it's on the table, this national emergency. Uh, he he may declare it. Let's say that he does. What ways would that be challenged if he declared a state of emergency? I think that it's, uh, you know, we haven't seen uh, draft uh, plans for using this method to go forward. And I think one of the reasons that we haven't seen uh, drafts or, or leaked versions of a path that the administration would follow is that they're they recognize or their lawyers recognize that they have to be wary of the prospects going forward. I think the arguments to use these these two emergency military construction authorities are somewhat thin because they both depend upon a military purpose to be served by the underlying spending. And as I said a couple of moments ago, it's really not a military operation at the border. It's a civilian operation managed by CBP. Uh, and, and they're doing just fine, by the way, uh, on the ground. There are nearly 20,000 such agents on the border. And uh, they didn't ask for the military's involvement. And by and large, the military are simply there 
providing logistical support, you know, driving people around, delivering water, uh, providing extra beds uh, for those who are along the border and so on. So I think it's a pretty tough argument to make. So it could be challenged in through the courts in the, in the couple of ways we suggested by having a property owner sue or by having someone who's subject to eminent domain challenge the lawfulness of the eminent domain. Otherwise, I think it's a political process in that, you know, Congress would have to hold the administration's feet to the fire or simply pass a new resolution that would say no funding for the wall uh, from from disappropriation or any other. They can certainly undo what they've done in the National Emergencies Act, either by making an exception to it in this case or by revising the law, the, the underlying law, the National Emergencies Act. Well, for the latter, wouldn't they have to get the president to sign it? Yeah, or overcome a veto. So two-thirds plus one, which is, of course, a pretty tough hill to climb. Just a bit. Nowadays, especially with the the partisan divisions. So just to be clear, so would a resolution, so you're saying a resolution by both houses of Congress would be enough? It would not. It would need to overcome his veto Mm -hmm. by enacting a new law and then overcoming that. So I'll say more or less as a final question, it, going forward, one thing that I think this entire episode has taught us is that a lot a lot of folks don't know much about the powers of a president during national emergency. And there have been serious concerns and questions that have been raised about the extent of a president's power during uh, a state of emergency or the ability to declare a state of emergency. How would you reform uh, the, the current law going forward? I've actually been thinking about this some. That's a, it's a very good question. I think the, the, the probably the most effective and in a way the simplest way to reform the law is to uh, add a sunset onto every proclamation that a president issues. I don't know, six months, 90 days, something like that, that would have the emergency uh, expire unless Congress by a bicameral majorities in both chambers vote to extend it. Yeah, that. What about what about allowing some sort of judicial, automatic judicial review of the the whether or not something is an emergency? It seems to me that you know there, such great deference would be shown, and the issue here is standing. In other words, finding the right person to potentially bring a suit. When, you know, it might be given that there's often going to be a question about um, uh, about whether or not there is an emergency. Couldn't uh, potentially just a, a vote of Congress and one or both chambers be enough to trigger, you know, we could have a triggering a judicial review or giving standing? I think that's an interesting possibility. Yeah, that might work. The problem with that uh, mechanism is that you'd also then want to change the underlying National Emergencies Act uh, provision because it does not define emergency. So as I said, I think at the beginning of our interview, it's really up to the president to decide what constitutes an emergency. And if that's what the statute says, the court wouldn't have any basis for second-guessing his his judgment. Yeah, you can imagine a statute that either A, defined emergency, or at least gave standing to members of Congress to challenge uh, whether or not something was an emergency and, and defined it in some way in the act. Um, yeah, that's a that's a tough challenge, though, or a tough definition to work out all the all the myriad ways that a national emergency could arise. 
One of our listeners, and I'm not sure if you have an answer for this or thoughts on it, but uh, barring the national emergency or his ability to, to secure that or, or decide on that, are there other legal avenues left for the president to force a wall being built? There are not. And that's, you know, the question is a good one. And the answer is quite an important one. Our uh, our system is built as as the, those who took civics in, in uh, school will remember on the principle of separation of powers. We're trying very hard not to give too much power to any one part of government. Our experience in forming a new government way back in the, in the 18th century was to come out of a, a war against a tyrant uh, named the King of England. And so we were very wary of executive power. So we did quite a bit to sort of limit it in various ways. And probably the power of the purse is the single most important tool that Congress retained for itself. Well, Professor Banks, I've learned a lot from you. Me Thank too. you. Yeah. Do you have any online courses? <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to speak with both of you. Thanks very much. Thank you, sir. So let's bring in Mimi Roca. Uh, many of you are, if you've been listening to the podcast, you should you should know Mimi. Uh, she's been on our podcast uh, multiple times before. She's an MSNBC legal analyst. She also is a former federal prosecutor from the Southern District of New York, uh, where some of the recent actions uh, have been pending. So let's bring in Mimi Roca. Mimi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Renata. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure to be here. So we have so much to discuss today. There's so much news, and I think it's probably worth starting with Probably what what was the most jaw dropping piece of news, which were these revelations in the filing from Manafort's attorneys that were supposed to be redacted but were not properly redacted, and so we all got to um, see them and view them. And I got to say, as a starting point, a lot of people were speculating as to whether or not these were in fact you know meant to be redacted or if somehow manafort's attorneys were playing some sort of shenanigans i will say my view on that is that if they wanted to tell trump's attorneys or someone else they could very easily pick up the phone to do so um and that it is also common for attorneys to make mistakes like this and in fact i will just confess in my law firm they sent around the IT folks sent around notices explaining how to properly properly redact things. I think they that is you know happened in other jobs that I've had as well because lawyers make mistakes like this on a somewhat regular basis, although not usually with this uh, sort of uh, consequence. Yeah, I, and also, I mean, I have to say I agree with you that first of all, attorneys, um, you know, myself included, they make mistakes. I, I, I probably I don't think I made one of this great consequence, but. Um, you know, for attorneys to deliberately do this to get the message out would be, um, you know, definitely uh, a, a bad idea and, and probably unethical. I'm not saying they're not capable of that, but I, I think we sort of uh, should assume that it was an innocent mistake for now because there, there were easier ways for them to get this information out, as you say. And, and on that, one of our listeners, uh, People for Democracy on Twitter, asks, uh, then if it was an error to release the unredacted documents, is it, can Manafort use it to help his case like misrepresentation? I don't see how this helps Manafort in any way. I, you know, the, the reality of this filing. So this was a filing that was made because 
Mueller said that Manafort lied to the prosecutors and and the uh, FBI agents. And uh, Manafort wanted to contest that, or Manafort's attorney said he was going to contest it. And in this document, they didn't deny that there were false statements and omissions that were made. Their argument was essentially that he didn't do so on purpose, which is uh, often the sort of way that this works. It's not uncommon for um, a defendant in a situation like this to say, look, I didn't, I just forgot, or it was a mistake or something like that. Um, but none of nothing really turns on uh, uh, turns on the the very specifics of the facts that were being uh, hidden. I will say that if anything, now th- that I mean, the judge would have seen this in any event. Now that the public knows, I think it it probably hurts Manafort because it I think makes the public uh, view him in a more nefarious light. Yeah, I agree with that. So, Mimi, maybe why don't you talk about I, I'd be interested in your thoughts of what you think that this sort of shows more broadly, the, the redacted portions, what was there and how it connects up to things in your view? Sure. So, um, I mean, first of all, I do think it is worth noting, though, that we're learning these um, new facts through Manafort's attorneys, which is really unusual. Usually when we learn new facts, particularly if they're incriminating to either Trump or someone uh, around him, like Manafort, it's through Mueller. Uh, So we do have to use, first of all, a little bit of caution um, and that this is how Manafort's attorneys are characterizing the facts, right? It's not through a Mueller filing and a Mueller description of the facts. That said, um, Mm -hmm. doesn't really any there's no reason for him to make it sound worse than it is, (laughs) as you say. Um, right. But, you know, I just think we have to keep in mind, um, I actually made a mistake yesterday and said something about it being in a Mueller filing because I'm so used to sort of learning um, things through Mueller <laughs> and his filings, which, you know, when Mueller puts it in, it's accurately described and it's something he can prove in court. That's not the case with Manafort. But I think generally speaking, you know, the outline of the facts that we've learned um, are twofold uh, that Manafort. Uh, at, you know, this this uh, figure, Konstantin Kalimnik, who we know he's had a prior relationship uh, with. We've heard a lot about that, you know, both in terms of the lobbying um, and uh, his, his business relationship. But that in particular, he had two inter- we learned about two interactions with him, one during the spring um, before the election. So spring of 2016, when he gave uh, Kalimnik some what's been described as uh, internal campaign poll de- polling data uh, and asked Kalimnik to pass that data along to, first it was reported that it was Oleg Deripaska, but I think the reporting on that has changed. Now it's uh, another oligarch, uh, Sergei Lovayachin. Um I don't think that matters so much, but the point is that he was giving internal polling uh, data to Kalimnik to pass along to some other Russian oligarchs. And Kalimnik himself is a um, described as, you know, former, which then people say there's there's no former Russian intel. So he's they're, they're all very connected to uh, to Putin, to the to the Russian government. And then uh, the second interaction that this revealed was uh, that there was a discussion about, quote, a Ukrainian peace plan uh, between Manafort and Kalimnik. And it's not entirely clear what that means, but um, 
anytime you hear anything about, you know, the Ukraine, basically, you can sort of substitute in there uh, Russia and sanctions, because that's what the Russian sanctions, which uh, we all know Putin is obsessed with uh, getting lifted, are connected to to, to their uh, invasion and taking over the Ukraine. So th- that's sort of the factual, a very broad summary. And I believe the second meeting that was talked about, there's been some debate about the timing. Again, the reporting on this has changed just in the past 24 hours. But the second meeting that was uh, talked about in the filing was between Manafort and Kolomnik, I believe, in October of 2017, which obviously is, you know, much later after the election. But I believe the polling mm-hmm. data meeting was in the spring of 2016. Does that sound like what your understanding of the facts? Yeah, that sounds about right. And you know, there's this this talk of a Ukrainian peace plan, uh, which I thought was interesting. I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't sure if I heard you mention that, yeah. but that that was essentially discussed or pitched by Manafort. I thought. The, I think that basically sums it up. Yeah. One of the questions from a listener is about the polling data. Is it also would it be illegal to share the same uh, information with a like-minded super PAC? You know, ignoring the fact that this is a is a foreign power. Just kind of wondering about the the magnitude of that revelation. So, from my perspective, it's not in and of itself. It's not clear that sharing it even with a foreign intelligence agent is itself illegal. So, let's start with that first of all. Do you agree with me on that, Mimi? Uh, yes, I do. In and of itself, that it is not illegal. Correct. Right. I think what makes this problematic, because I also know a lot of the questions that people had was, well, if this is a, is this a smoking gun? If this is a smoking gun, why hasn't been indicted yet? I saw a bunch of questions a lot of, along those lines. OK, so let's because I think that's what me and Mimi need to delve into yeah. here. So what 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 look, the obvious implication you draw from this is that I think an obvious implication, if not the most obvious implication, is that. Uh, Paul Man- Paul Manafort gave this data to the Russian intelligence operative, because or former intelligence operative, whatever, because he wanted to get aid for the campaign from Russian intelligence or the Russian government in some way. That I think is a very obvious um, implication, because generally campaigns don't share their internal polling data with others, and if they are, there has to be a good reason for it. And why you would go out of your way to share it with a Russian intelligence operative in this sort of secret meeting is unclear unless you that person needed it for some reason. And the reason that they the only plausible reason why the Russian government would need internal polling data from a U.S. presidential campaign uh, would be to assist that campaign in some way. Is that fair to say? Yeah, although I want to just interject a twist, a a slight slight tweak to that factual scenario, which is a little less extreme and, and, and maybe... Um, as more plausible, which is that not that necessarily he, what Manafort was soliciting help, but that he was aware or at least had some idea that the Russians were already sort of trying to um, influence the election in, in various ways and that he had a request by them for help with that. So, in other words, it, it, I'm just sort of shifting the emphasis. It doesn't necessarily have to be Manafort sure. going to them and saying, here's some polling data. Can you help us win the election? Um, could have happened that way. 
But just as plausible, if not more, in my mind, is Russia's already undertaken this effort, which they didn't start in the spring of 2016. And, you know, it was a, a long planned and executed effort. And in doing so, they needed help in how and where to direct their social media influence, how to, you know, where and how to do, and when to disseminate, uh, you know, the uh, the emails and, and et cetera. That comes a little later. But, um, you know, I, I think that's where this kind of polling data, if I understand it, could be most useful. And it may have been an explicit ask to Manafort, get us some polling data so we know how to where to target our social media influence. Or it could have been much more subtle, as, as you well know, when people engage in uh, illicit behavior, criminal behavior, they're often not explicit about it. It's, it's more of a wink and a nod uh, and, and, and what's you know, very understated. They're going to say as little as possible. So I just want to throw sort of that sort of less extreme factual scenario out there as a possibility. I, I think that's I think that's a fair implication to draw. I think what I, I well, so what let's let, let's I want to tease that out a little bit. First of all, let me just say I think that that is, as I put it, the most obvious implication to draw. Whether or not it's uh, whether it's a he's making the ask there or the, or he's ex- aware of a pre-existing effort. The, the and I think your I think your point is correct, Mimi. That that's a it's a. Uh, an easier to prove, I would say, factual scenario or less challenging for prosecutors to prove it that, and, and equally plausible that he could have already been aware of an ongoing effort and this was a way of aiding it. Um, but in any event, that's, a, I'd say, the most obvious implication. I will point out that it's not the only possible way, it, you, the implication you could draw from it. So in other words, you know, you can imagine a lawyer for Paul Manafort saying, well, Paul Manafort was uh, owed Russian oligarchs a lot of money. He was trying to show them that his influence mattered, that they wanted, to, they should give him right off some of the debt, or uh, keep you know keep him around in their good graces. And you know, by demonstrating that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency or had a chance to win the presidency or had a shot, you know, he would be magnifying his own influence. Now, I don't think that that is the obvious implication to draw. I don't think that that's the right one. All I'm just noting for folks to put it in context is to help you understand that, you know, a lot of times people ask on the Internet, well, how could you possibly defend against this? And I want everyone to understand that there are ways to argue this and it would be up to the prosecutors, Mueller's team, to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt as exactly what his intentions were. Yeah, and and so I think, and you and I did go back and forth on this, um, you know, yesterday a little bit on on text, which I think is useful because as a prosecutor, you want to think of, okay, what's the likely explanation here, but what other explanations are there? And we don't have all of the facts and all the evidence. Mueller does. And that other evidence, besides just knowing about this meeting and knowing apparently what transpired at this meeting, the other evidence is what's going to help you eliminate or make more likely one explanation over the other and decide. doesn't mean you're going to completely uh, demolish a possible defense, for example, before you charge something. But you want to know in your head before you charge it, you know, what what you're comfortable with the real explanation is. Um I think it's also possible, I mean, something we should tell people, I think, is 
that it can be more than one purpose. I mean, we know that Manafort was trying to curry favor with these oligarchs because he was in debt to them. We've seen emails about that. We've heard about that through the Manafort trials and other reporting. So there's no question that that motivation existed. There certainly were other ways for him. I mean, he, you know, to, to show, I, I think that, you know, Trump had a possibility of winning and, and that, uh, you know, they should stick with him, basically, in, in, in order to allow him to pay back these debts. But it could be that he had more than one purpose. And for criminal charges for a conspiracy, it doesn't only have to be one purpose. He could have been trying to sort of utilize uh, his position with the Trump campaign for his own financial benefit and knowing that the Russians were trying to help Trump get elected, and he was trying to help them do that by giving them this information. So, uh, you know, we often have more than one motivation going on, and, and that's okay in terms of uh, charging criminal conspiracies. Exactly right. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, so the legal principles in terms of what prosecutors would have to prove in a situation like this. If you read my Twitter feed, you're familiar with some of these already because you've heard me describe them in some detail. But I think it's useful to understand here so you understand what Mueller would need to prove. So in the scenario that you discussed, Mimi, what you were really talking about is what I'm gonna, what, what we commonly call, in my mind, aiding and abetting. So in other words, Mueller has already charged a criminal conspiracy of a bunch of Russians who were, in, you know, uh, making illegal contributions to campaigns in the United States, who are engaged in an, an effort of subterfuge in order to influence our elections in a way that is is uh, against the law. It's a criminal activity as charged by Mueller. It's already been indicted. And so to prove that uh, Paul Manafort aided and abetted that effort, all that Mueller would have to prove, and I say all, but it's it's not that easy to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, is that Manafort knew about that criminal activity and helped to make it succeed. So certainly I think, it, you know, it, it, the the polling data, I think, helps a lot towards the second one. You could, I think you explained in some detail, Mimi, that, um, that you know, how the polling data could be used by the Russians to help. And I think what would be left on an aiding and abetting theory, and we can get to conspiracy in a minute, but on an aiding and abetting theory, what the challenge would be for Mueller is to prove them that when Manafort went to that meeting with the Russian operative, that he already knew about this criminal activity by the Russians or knew that it was going to happen or was happening. Exactly. And that's usually the heart and and i assume here would be the hardest uh, element to meet it, it always is uh, well exactly. usually for prosecutors is, is that knowledge element um and you know i think again we're at a real disadvantage because we don't have all the evidence that Mueller has it's possible that he has direct evidence of manafort knowing that the russians were already undertaking that it's through either someone like a cooperator, like Gates, corroborated by other evidence. It's possible, though unlikely, that there's some kind of recording out there, either from the intelligence community uh, or something like that. Uh, you know, other electronic data. I mean, these are the kinds of things that prosecutors would would normally rely on. But it is, as you know, also possible to establish that he knew through circumstantial evidence, which is a complicated way of saying through the surrounding circumstances, that if you look at everything together, 
it would be really uh, it, it would be possible to persuade a jury that, of course, he knew, essentially. Um, and, you know, that is a, a big and, and undertaking to sort of gather up all the evidence of all of the circumstances of why someone might know that, uh, why we may, how we would be able to show that Manafort knew that. But I think already, based on what's in the public record, that that would be it would be an argument that I would be willing to try and make in a court of law. Um, but again, you know, there could be evidence that that Mueller has that cuts the other way. So I'm, you know, we're, we're working with half the deck here, but those are sort of the two different ways that you would try to show that knowledge. So you believe Mimi, based on all of the publicly available evidence that you, if you were Robert Mueller, you would charge Paul Manafort with aiding and abetting the Russian influence effort in the United States. Yes, but with the strong caveat that, again, there could be evidence that we don't know that cuts the other way. Like, evidence can help or hurt your case. And since we don't have access to all of that, you know, I, I can't say that for certain. But, but if, I, if I were starting from a blank slate and assuming there was nothing else out there, which I think is not the case— whether it be helpful or hurtful evidence, yes, I think I I would I would try to make the case that you know we know the Russians did this. We, if you look at the indictments that Mueller has brought, you know these go far back in time, and is a, is a is a complicated, intricate, deliberate undertaking, and that this and and it helped Trump and. You know, you, you have to look at sort of what their end game was. Why would they help Trump if Trump and his uh, people didn't know about it? And then you look at the relationship between Manafort and uh, these Russian, you know, intel, uh, former intel officers, oligarchs, people who are basically, you know, stand-ins for, for Putin in this conversation. Uh, and his him being sort of the go-between, him joining the campaign for no money. Just there, there are so many different pieces that I would I would use to put together to show circumstantially at least that he knew this was going on. And even just through this act, though I think there are many more, he was trying to help them, uh, or at least it was foreseeable to him that this would help them in their efforts. So I want to, this is a really important point that Mimi is making, and I want to try to put it in context for everyone here, because I think Mimi, you're drawing, you're drawing some important distinctions that I want to make sure the listeners understand. You know, one thing you've, you said in your analysis here is you're saying, look, let's put everything that, that we don't know publicly to the, to the side. And one thing I want to mention to listeners is that is always my approach when I analyze things for you is I only look at what's in the public record. I understand Mueller knows a thousand things that we don't know, um, but I don't feel like it's my job to use a hunch as to what he might have to fill in the blanks. Um, I can tell you what implications there are, what could be found or things like that, but it's up to, you know, I'm trying to do analysis. It's based on what we know publicly. And one thing I respect about you, Mimi, I don't, I don't personally, I, it's my view that personally that I think it's a, a bit misleading to the public for us to sort of put hunches and things like that into things other than to explain when, when, when things aren't known or what could change our analysis. 
Um, and one thing I respect about you is I, I like the, the way you're doing this by kind of talking about what we do know publicly. And I think it's interesting to folks. I will say I don't agree with you on this point. I, um, I think that proving someone's knowledge beyond a reasonable doubt in court uh, is challenging to do. I've, you know, I think we've both, you and I have both done this many times. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and, <laughs> and it's hard at times to, to do it circumstantially without direct evidence. So in the public view, uh, based upon what we know publicly without an absence of direct evidence and what we, what you, you explained it a moment ago where you talk about, uh, you know, the recordings like it would have, or, you know, him telling other people that what he's going to do, I think, there's just not enough detail there to support a charge. Um, but I will say a lot of folks who listen to this are, are watching television and hearing a lot of people say, look, Trump is going down. Uh, you know, Pen I, I've seen one legal analyst saying that Pence is going to be president, for, you know, for 2020. I've seen people saying that, you know, Mueller's got a royal flush uh, already and other things. You know, they have a different view. I, you know, I, what I find interesting here is, um, you know, the way you're you're trying to weave together sort of facts that are in the public record. I think it's important f because to me, what, what this is I hopefully showing the listeners is that even people like us who are trying just to very carefully look at the public evidence are getting to a point where we can at least talk about a charge that is kind of core to this Russia piece of things. And to me, that should shift the conversation a bit. Absolutely. And, and I don't disagree with anything you said. I, I think, um, you know, the, the question you put to me, which is a fair question, is would you charge this? And, you know, at the end of the day, it would be an incredibly hard charge. And if it was a charge that I had to bring to trial, I'm not sure I would win it. You know, but that's sort of how I was raised as a prosecutor is if you think someone is guilty of something and you think you can charge it and you think, you know, I've got a chance at trial, then you're going to take that chance. Um, now, I'm not even taking into account here the politics of this, which is a whole different level when we're talking about Manafort and Trump in this scenario. I'm look, trying to look at this as just a, you know, straight out, like this is any other defendant. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's how prosecutors look at it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more complicated here than just that. So I, I do want to caution that I'm not saying if, you know, if Mueller doesn't charge this, then, you know, they, they aren't being aggressive enough because that's not the case at all, um, especially because, because again, uh, the evidence that Mueller has that we don't have could cut the other way. And that's, that's important for people to understand um, that it, it could be exonerating uh, to Manafort and therefore maybe Trump. But I agree with you. I, you know, my, I've always said, and, and I'm sure you feel this way, and I think most you know, former law enforcement federal prosecutors do, that whatever Mueller finds, I'm going to have faith in it, if, even if that doesn't include criminal liability for Trump or people in his campaign, because I do have faith in this investigation and his process. And that, that's not a very popular thing to say, because I think people, a lot of people are... <laughs> assuming that it's going to end with, you know, criminal charges against at least some of these people. Um, but, you know, I think I think we have to sort of have faith in this in this process. And it's about getting to the truth. It's not about convicting certain people or, or charging certain people. It's about finding out what really happened as close to that truth as we can get. 
There's a, a couple of listeners who have questions about, you know, everything we've learned throughout this process. And as you both mentioned, we only know what's public, publicly shared, right? So one of the things that our listeners want to know is if you guys have any theories concerning Manafort and the polling data, Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, as it all pertains to, to Russia, you know, and, and voting machines as well. That all came up in the thread. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot there. I mean, that's a thing. Yeah, it's I, you know, there is so many different ways in which it could go. I mean, to me, the way I look at this is I view what I view what we know so far as very limited specs in sort of an ocean. So it's almost as if, you know, you're looking up in the sky and you see stars, but you have no idea what's in between them. So to me, I think, you know, that that's part of the reason why I, I have. A sort of a humility about it uh, in terms of what we can connect. Sometimes it's fairly straightforward. I, I wrote a piece a, in, a year ago now saying that I thought that uh, the president, uh, that Donald Trump obstructed justice, and I laid out the case. Why? Because he's so public about it and, right. and talks about it. He's so direct about what his <laughs> intentions are that it's fairly straightforward to prove. But this is so, and we've also heard from a key witness at length, uh, James Comey, this there's so little to, to out there that it's hard for me to conclude. And I I really uh, disagree with people who draw very strong conclusions by weaving together little bits and pieces from various news articles. Yeah. And, and look, we haven't even talked about the second piece that we, we, in our summary. We, we started talking about this, this uh, supposed Ukrainian uh you know, peace plan that uh, Manafort was discuss- mm-hmm. discussing with Kalimna. And that's sort of a not separate, but a whole other piece of this that kind of gets back to something we talked a lot about um, with Cohen and the Trump Tower Moscow piece of it. You know, was there some kind of quid pro quo going on? Right. And and it's not really separate. It, it could exactly. all be part of the same thing. But it's it's a, it's another intriguing part of this that, again, makes me think if I am going to draw some inferences, you know, that the polling data isn't just um, about Manafort, but ties into a, a larger um, scheme, if you will. But again, I'm, I'm not I'm not drawing that as a conclusion. I'm raising it as a as a real possibility at this point. Right. I I, I think just so listeners make it crystal clear. So you know, Mimi and we, and I discussed our conclusions about aiding and abetting. I'd say there's a couple other kind of legal concepts that we should bring up here. One is I do want to turn to a concept that all of you who have read my Twitter threads or some of my writings, I op-eds know about as conspiracy and how that works. And the government there would have to prove that, you know, Manafort in this case, um, you know, entered into an agreement to commit a crime with one or more other people. And that he so he knowingly did that. It doesn't mean he knows everybody else who's part of the conspiracy. It doesn't mean he was involved in all the parts of the conspiracy, but that he did agree to break the law uh, and and not just break the law because that could be a civil violation. But he agreed to commit a crime. So, for example, that he knew the, the idea here, the, you know, and this was the way I stated it before. I think, Mimi, you helpfully explain another way of looking at the at the polling data, whereas, you know, he it would be like giving the data to the Russian intelligence operative for the per, you know, because they agreed, you know, as part of a discussion that he that that essentially um, the Russians would or some group of Russians would aid the Trump campaign in some way. 
Yes, and and in some ways, um, it, I mean, so one one other sort of piece of that is is conspiracy to break what law, um, and 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 I'm right. I'm not sure we we know that yet. Um, for example, just to take a, a, a extreme ex- sort of view of this, if Manafort gave this data to them to the Russians knowing in some way, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, that it, it was being used to help them influence the election, um, you know, and if he knew that some of this data was stolen or hacked, you know, he could be in some kind of, uh, there could be some kind of uh, hacking type of conspiracy that, that he's joined. Uh, I think that's probably more than you know, Mueller would need to show and, and get much more complicated in terms of the facts. But the, the conspiracy that Mueller has already charged is this conspiracy basically to defraud the United States by interfering in the election. And that's a much more broad-based uh, charge that would be sort of easier to show Manafort joining in some way, uh, joining the conspiracy, which is how, as you know, prosecutors talk about it. Exactly right. So that's really helpful, uh, Mimi. I agree with that 100%. So when we are talking about this polling data, the way I was imagining it as I was describing conspiracy law was joining that, you know, what you should put a conspiracy to defraud the United States by influencing the election. I will note that that is a charge that is, uh, if it's ever been brought before, I'm not aware of it. It's a very, conspiracy to defraud the United States is common, uh, but usually it's in the tax context. In this context of contributions to a campaign, it's it's unusual. And so, you know, it's one thing to charge Russians who are never going to make it to court. Um, uh, you know, although this company, as we'll talk about in a bit, uh, is, you know, this uh, troll, this troll farm, ha- you know, does have some lawyers. But, you know, in, in, if I was defending Manafort, I would and I was my client was charged with. Uh, aiding and abetting or joining a conspiracy to engage in this contribution, uh, illegal contribution, I would be looking at how that could be challenged as a legal matter. And I think some of the lawyers, I think they have tried to challenge that already uh, in in various uh, of the charged, in the charged Russian case, if I'm not mistaken, and that it was upheld. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that, well, that's helpful. That's helpful to know. I wasn't aware of that, but that it is definitely not a garden variety uh, criminal case. Uh, but hacking, like, which is another thing you mentioned, would be. That's one reason why I wanted to raise that distinction. Hacking is the sort of thing I've indicted people who hack servers. It, it, people and you know the federal prosecutors do that on a regular basis. The other thing that you had mentioned as a concept recently, Mimi, was this I quid. Well, we talked about a quid pro quo. This is where you trade. Uh, a public act, let's say lifting sanctions, for something of value. This is the sort of thing that uh, is is prosecuted fairly often by uh, uh, federal prosecutors in Chicago against corrupt for corrupt public officials. I think the complication here is, of course, uh, Manafort's candidate, uh, President Trump, was not in office at that time. Uh, I'm sorry, at which time? 
at at the time that these you know this p- potential conspiracy was underfoot because he was not yet president. Oh, correct. So promising that you would you would lift sanctions if you were president is different than promising it once you're already in office. So that would be a legal yes, yes. Um, it, although my understanding is once he became the party nominee, he, he would be subject to the to the statute. If we're talking about the bribery quid pro quo statute. Um, Mm-hmm. Once he, which I believe, well, the, the that would have happened in July. So, yeah, the stuff predating that would be difficult to charge in a in a bribery sense, but not in the um, conspiracy to fraud that we've been talking about. And even with respect to the bribery, if you found that there that it continued afterwards, I think you could sort of, you know, wrap it up into into one big. Uh, you know, scheme, course of conduct. Um, but yes, that would be, I mean, these are the kind of things that prosecutors have to think about that people and reporters and, you know, when we're, when we're drawing these conclusions, out of, we don't have to deal with as much, but they're very real and very, uh, can be very problematic in terms of actually bringing charges, which gets back to one of your listeners' first questions, I think, you know, of why hasn't this been charged yet? And, and there could be so many reasons. I mean, Mueller may have been trying to keep this information, even assuming that this information we're talking about leads to uh, some kind of criminal liability. It may be that Mueller didn't want it to come out yet because it's, you know, it, it's connected to other information and other charges and other people. So there could be that. It could be that it, it doesn't lead to criminal liability. There's a lot of different, I think, answers to that question. But we have to keep in mind, keep reminding people that the elements and the requirements that prosecutors have to meet in a court are so much different than what we talk about in the general public. Exactly right. And a lot of times things that are bad because they appear to be against the interests of the United States of America may be very bad things. They may not necessarily be technically crimes under United States law. Exactly. So I want to turn now, yeah, because you have to cover so many topics today, and talk briefly about the indictment of the Russian lawyer who was at the Trump Tower meeting. She was indicted by your former office in the Southern District of New York of obstructing justice, and Essentially, those charges revealed, I thought it was interesting how much they revealed her connections with the Russian government were. Yes. And I think that's sort of the uh, most most obvious, but also most significant thing to come out of that charge, because, you know, she uh, in those charges, it describes how she coordinated uh, closely with the Russian prosecutor's office to essentially lie in this declaration to try to uh, protect these corrupt Russian government officials who uh, were being accused of engaging in this sort of massive tax fraud scheme, fraud scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so, so it's not just that she knew them, it's not just that she was a lawyer, but that she she coordinated with them, conspired with them uh, to to lie in this way to protect these government officials. So it shows her uh, her closeness, her uh, sort of intimate involvement with them. Um, and uh, you know, I think that it also um, you when you look at and this is this is a whole other sort of factual scenario, but but the underlying facts of that case, which have to do with uh, 
you know, this money laundering scheme, uh, tax fraud uh, involving the Russian government and the uh, Sergei Magnitsky, who, again, when you, you know, getting back to Ukraine and the sanctions, uh, it, it all ties back back to him. Um, you know, those underlying facts that she was involved with could end up sort of being uh, important and coming up in again, I think. It's, so it's, it's the obstruction, it's her relationship to the Russian uh, government, to Putin, uh, but also these underlying facts that I think may turn out, you know, that she was involved in that may turn out to be significant uh, as we learn more about her, the Trump Tower meeting and, and other aspects of her involvement. Yeah, I mean, to me, when I look at what the takeaways are from that indictment, I think two things, you know, first, that it's clear now that to me that she was an agent of the Russian government and that that the government, the Justice Department feels strong, uh, feels strongly enough and has the evidence enough to prove that in court that they were able to indict her uh, on uh, and make allegations regarding regarding that that were um, that they feel confident about proving in court, which means that if there were charges about, let's say, the Trump Tower meeting, they would also be able to prove her ties around that same time to the Russian government. But all, and so to me, that also means that it makes the entire Russian uh, Trump Tower meeting less innocent in the sense that you, you could, you know, it would be Trump Tower, uh, Trump Jr. and Kushner could no longer say that they're meeting with some mope who really happened to be Russian, but really didn't know anyone or, you know, wasn't uh, involved with the Russian government. The email said that she was an emissary of the Russian government. And in fact, she turned out to be that. Now they can still claim that they didn't really understand that or know that or discuss, you know, didn't form the various elements they would need to form to commit a crime. But it strikes me as a a step forward uh, for a case along those lines. Exactly. I think those are all good conclusions. Oh, okay. And the other, um, you know, one of the other, uh, I want to get to a couple other things fairly uh, briefly. Uh, one is there was this, this troll, the Russian troll farm internet research agency had um, uh, their lawyers had made some, I'll, I'll call over the top legal filings. The judge, a federal judge in that case, I will point out she was appointed by President Trump just to note to, to folks that they shouldn't assume that just because a, ju- a president appointed a judge that the judge necessarily uh, will lean one way or the other. She um, she took them to task and found that their tone and their behavior was inappropriate. And then they doubled down and think of a filing that criticized the judge and also was sort of outside the box. I'm just curious what you made of that. Look, what I made of it is what I think you and I uh, and, and others who have you know, whether on the defense side or prosecution side practice in court, no, which is these kind of uh, over-the-top shenanigans, you know, the, the, the slandering, the baseless uh, accusations that Trump and Giuliani, and Giuliani in particular because he's a lawyer, you know, do in public and in the press, those don't fly in court, uh, especially in federal court. And I think to me what stood out is is that it, it shows, and we've, we've seen this before, that, that when you get this sort of this whole scenario that, that is playing out 
in, you know, sort of the, the public and, and with the uh, like a jury of the public, when you get it into a court setting with rules and uh, standards and judges, it, it, it really tends to go against the sort of Trump uh, strategy uh, of, um, you know, trying to distract and smear and, and just saying, you know, really, I think many baseless claims and lies. And I'm not saying they did all of that here in their brief, but it's, it's part of that whole strategy. And they, these lawyers tried it uh, in court. And, and of course, it, it backfired. Um, you know, I think that we saw that with Flynn, uh, you know, when his lawyers tried to sort of do something kind of cute, uh, it, it completely backfired. And, and I, I think I think we're going to see that. And you can cut both ways. You know, judges are, are hard on the government, too. But I think in general, I took it as a sign of this strategy from from Trump and Giuliani that they that they do so publicly and works for them sometimes. It does not work in a court of law. I, I I have to say, too, I, you know, there's a very, very prominent lawyer who reached out to me privately and to talk about this and and said, you know, I don't I don't understand. The other lawyer said, I don't understand why any lawyer would do this because their their reputation would be shot in that courthouse forever, that mm-hmm. that judge would talk to the other judges. The word would spread and it would be a very disastrous thing for that that lawyer. And I, I tend to agree with that. I, I can't imagine a lawyer doing that. It makes me wonder what the incentive was here. Like how much money are they getting from these, from the the client to to do that? I'm just, I have to wonder if it's that they know how bad their case is. Just throwing a Hail Mary. Yeah. Most lawyers would not risk their career to, to win one case. But I, I, what do you think of that, Mimi? I mean, it's just bizarre. No, I think that's right. I mean, most lawyers, you know, do sort of uh, do for good reason, care about their reputation with prosecutors and with judges. And, and it, it really integrity, your, your integrity and reputation on, on both sides is, is really everything. So it is surprising. Um, I, I do have to wonder, right, how much of it was sort of a um, done for the client's benefit. And I'm, and, and I'm not sure who the client is here. Right. I mean, it, it's technically uh, Concord management. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think there could be other people who interests uh, align with that. Um, and and they were trying to maybe impress and put on a show for for those people. Indeed. One topic that I pro- I think we'll we'll skip past for the most part, unless you have something to to mention, Mimi, is just this uh, this case that went up to the Supreme Court uh, that ultimately the motion for stay that was denied. Uh, you know, we don't know what that that company was, foreign owned company. There's been a lot of speculation as to what it was. It strikes me that we haven't learned much new about that. Is there anything that you want to share about that before I move on to our final topic? No, I think today there was some new reporting uh, that the law firm involved in it uh, is uh, now known. The, the law firm on the, the mystery company side is Alston and Bird. Um, you know, I'm sure there will be now be a lot of reporting about what that could possibly mean and what, what hints that gives us. But I think the only thing we can say for sure is that whatever evidence that company has, Mueller really wants, and whatever evidence that company has, they really don't want to give mm-hmm. up. Um, and that's about it I as far th- as we can go right now. I think that's fair to say. It would cost a lot of money in legal fees, hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially in legal fees for all this the work that they've been doing. And a lot of time. But let's talk. I want to. <laughs> 
Oh, no doubt. Yeah. On the other side as well, for sure. Um, so let's just talk briefly about, I think, the important news of today as we're recording this. Rod Rosenstein, uh, word has gotten out is he is going to be stepping down. Initially, the reports from many different sources were that he was going to step down when Bill Barr, who's that uh, the, the uh, Trump appointee for attorney general, we've discussed at length here, written this very lengthy, problematic memo about Mueller and Mueller's obstruction theory uh, when he's confirmed. But then recent report from NBC News, where your illegal analyst said that he is going to wait for the Mueller report to drop, suggesting at least to the NBC reporters that the Mueller investigation would end soon. What, what do you make of that, Mimi? Well, look, I, I, I think that you know, we know that Mueller extended his grand jury for six months, although, as, as you well know, it was either extending it not at all, zero, or six months. So there was nothing in between. And, it, and beyond the six months, you know, I think he could get further extensions, but, but it, it gets harder. The six month extension is, is pretty standard. So I do think that we are looking likely at a six month window where within that six month window, you know, I, I obviously haven't talked to the sources. I, you know, I, I the report, people who are reporting this are, are great reporters and I'm sure it's what their sources are telling them. Um, I think, you know, we, we just we have to be uh, careful about sort of giving specific dates and making them sound like deadlines, because um, I, I have seen people say, oh, there's a February deadline for the report. That's definitely not the case. Could it be that he comes out with a report in February? Sure. Could it be that it comes out in March, April or May? Yes. Uh, or, you know, somewhere. But I think somewhere in the six, six month window is probably a, a safer <laughs> estimate to give. Um, I do think that even before I had heard this reporting about Rosenstein staying until the report came out earlier today, I was on and I said that, you know, just from what we've seen of Rosenstein and his sort of fierce protection in, in an appropriate way of the Mueller investigation, the fact that he's such an institutionalist, he, he deeply and sincerely, I think, believes in the rule of law and has really, you know, tried hard in, in a brutal two years to uphold that. Um, I don't think he would leave if he didn't think that the investigation at least was in a safe place. Now, whether that means that he'll stay until the day, you know, the report comes out or that he is confident it will be able to come out. And, and I don't know what would give him that confidence, uh, but it, it seems to me that he wouldn't leave without having to. Uh, and, and it sounds like he's not being forced out, you know, sort of directly, um, that he wouldn't leave without having that comfort. That, that's the thing that I feel most confident in saying is that I have enough confidence in Rosenstein based on everything we know about him and everything he's done to say that he won't leave and he wouldn't leave until things are in a, in a good place, if you will, you know, with the investigation. Well, I'll, I'll just say uh, I, a couple of thoughts on my end. First, as to the ending of the investigation, uh, other than, the, I mean, I saw Ken had that report, Ken Delanian from NBC News, had that report that the Mueller investigation was winding down. I had seen nothing other than that. I mean, aside from that report on its own, which it didn't mean a lot to me, honestly, because I didn't think the defense attorneys quoted in it were in any position to know when Mueller would end. I saw nothing that suggested to me that Mueller's investigation was winding down soon. 
even if Mueller didn't get an extension in his grand jury, he could read the evidence from the old grand jury into the new one, just to have the transcripts read into the new one. So it didn't, that didn't really mean anything to me. Um, and I didn't really see any external evidence that this was winding down. I mean, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It was I, I was just agnostic on that question. Uh, but I will say I agree with you that that Rosenstein leaving, can't, you know, caused me to wonder what did that mean. I mean, that struck me as the first indication that things may very well be winding down, because or that he at very least felt, as you said, that that the Mueller investigation was so far along that it couldn't be derailed in a serious way by Barr. But it's also possible that Rosenstein just doesn't think that Barr would de- actually derail the Mueller investigation. You know, he may have a different view of Barr than you or I do. He may really trust the man. Um, or, you know, he may be weary of, I mean, I will say that a lot of career law enforcement folks are not as excited about being in the front lines and being in the front page of the newspaper uh, in the way that a lot of other folks are. Um uh, but I, uh, you know, and so maybe he just was getting a sense of fatigue from that. But I think I think the most likely scenario is that is what you suggested, Mimi. Yeah. And I mean, as you know, you know, that the job that, that Rosenstein has had, even under the best of circumstances, is a uh, really, I mean, taxing job. <laughs> uh, I mean, unbelievably demanding and I think under the circumstances that he's had it, you know, th- there's no question that I think he, he's, he's earned this, the right to sort of say, OK, I've, I've done this. Let's go. I, but I, I, I think that he would have stuck it out if he needed to because he was afraid about what was happening to the investigation. I just want to make sure, uh, by the way, that our listeners know that through this conversation, Renata and uh, Mary- and Mimi have essentially answered all the questions that were on the feed, just uh, through the uh, your perspective. So I, I didn't want people to think that I was like hanging back and not asking their questions. <laughs> I was checking them off as you guys were. <laughs> Well, and B, I will just say to folks, this is a thankless job because uh, we're trying to get through a hundred different topics at once, essentially, in what would should be a, a podcast about one topic at a time. Um, and I guess I'll just bring up the one last topic that, or the one last question that I'd love to get your take on. You know, there keeps being there, 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 there keeps being discussion in the in the in the press and in the public about the Mueller report, uh, and you know what I see in the special counsel regulations is that Mueller would have to write a report regarding his, a confidential report regarding his prosecutorial decisions, which would be given to the attorney general, but not necessarily any kind of report that would be publicly available detailing evidence uh, and discussing things what? that haven't been charged. We want it all, Renata. Yeah, I'm sure about? we do. So what I want to know is I have, I'm sort of, I, I, I'm not completely sure what to expect from Robert Mueller, but I, I was curious what your thoughts were, Mimi. Well, I agree. I mean, we, we don't know what the report's going to look like. Um, you know, I and and there's been some debate about if the report contains grand jury material, you know, as you know, that that presents sort of a whole, which I assume it w- we will have to, um, a whole other layer in terms of how, do, how do you make a report like that uh, public? Uh, I, I would assume it would have to be redacted, um, although I think an unredacted copy could go to Congress. Um, I, I mean, my 
under under the federal rules. I think there are provisions for that one in the public interest. But, you know, it, it's that that's just another thing that sort of the lawyers are going to have to think about in a way that people shouldn't just assume it's easy for Mueller to write a report and put it out there. Um, I think that um, Mueller is going to lay out the facts. You know, I, I don't envision him drawing a lot of conclusions uh, in terms of what in that report, I think it's more going to be a factual roadmap summary type of report, but I, I could be wrong. I mean, I, I just, I don't know that it's his job in the report to, to lay out specific crimes, but maybe given that he's already charged some of these crimes, um, he, he will sort of fit them into that context. But uh, I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at. Yeah, I mean, for me, if I was looking just at the text of the special counsel regulations, and what I would think is, you know, Mueller's already indicted a lot of people. Those indictments speak for themselves. He might explain briefly uh, in, a, in the sort of language that we would expect internally as a prosecutor's memo saying, here is why I charged Rick Gates. Here's why I charged Paul Manafort and so on and so on and so forth. And then at the end... He might explain, here's 10 different people who I didn't charge, and he, and very briefly, here's the reason that we didn't. And it could be, a lot, you know, like, here's a lack of evidence on this point or that point or the other thing, without necessarily discussing at great length all of the evidence as to whoever it is, whether it's Roger Stone or Jerome Corsi or whomever else that he may or may not charge. And then, you know, a lot of, and then the question would be to me is, what if there are is activity regarding Trump uh, who couldn't be indicted under Justice Department guidance? And I would think there he would there would have to be some arrangement where he would write a separate report detailing, for example, evidence regarding obstruction of justice or other issues that he felt constituted, um, you know, constituted crimes that, that there's sufficient evidence to, to indicate that the president committed crimes so that it could be transmitted to Congress. But to me, it's unclear what mechanism that would be. Would that be a grand jury report? It's not clear what that mechanism would be. And that initial, that the, the, what I'm calling the, the final report as to the prosecutorial decisions, to me, would be very different than what a lot of the public expects it to be. Right. I think, I think that's right. We have to manage expectations a little bit. Um, I, I do, and I, I think you, you did have a whole podcast on this, but you know, when we say can't be charged under existing guidelines, we're operating under the assumption that even if those guidelines are not correct, which I personally think, in other words, I think if they were really challenged, they they could go the other way. But I think that Mueller and the Southern District will operate under the guidelines as they exist and not indict a sitting president. Doesn't mean they couldn't be challenged or shouldn't be challenged. Uh, in some way, but uh, but that as long as those guidelines exist, they won't actually charge him. I think that's exactly right, because Robert Mueller and the folks in the Southern District of New York are components of the Justice Department, and they are bound by the views of the Justice Department, for better or for worse. 
well, I got to tell you, Mimi, this has been uh, a marathon of an episode. <laughs> We've covered so many topics. Outstanding, you guys. We've learned so much. And by the way, I will tell you, this is... Uh, I thought one of the most interesting conversations that I've ever had. I actually I learned from you during this conversation. I think some of your views are really interesting. So thank you. It, it, I really appreciate you joining us. Oh well, thank you. I, I learn from you every time I read your Twitter feed and listen to your podcast, which I always do. So, <laughs> and on behalf of myself and uh, on behalf of myself and the followers on Twitter and all the listeners, I was very grateful for this conversation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 